Netflix or YouTube? Uh, I tend to... Spotlight. Spotlight more, yep. I'd say delete both of those and put iNaturalist. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I, I, I'm hooked on getting out there and finding critters and helping to map the distribution of things. And so, yeah, yep. iNat is where I'm at. Welcome to another episode of the Green Adelaide podcast. I am your host, Melissa Martin, and I'm the communications manager at Green Adelaide, who loves red-tailed black cockatoos. We are Metro SA's first and only environmental industry podcast, where your insider scoop on all things cool, green, and wild in metropolitan South Australia. Before we jump in, remember, subscribe to our podcast for new episode alerts. This episode, we'll be talking about grey-headed flying foxes why they are here, what's special about them, and demystifying myths about them. And to do this, we have local bat expert and ecologist, the team lead of urban biodiversity at Green Adelaide, Jason Van Wien, and welcome, Jason. Thanks, Mel. First off, let's chat about your career journey. Can you tell us about your career and how you ended up in your role today? Okay, do Yeah, so I uh, grew up on the west coast of South Australia um, and uh, – Country towns, Tricky Bay, and uh, and one of my best friends was uh, um, his parents uh, worked in the national parks, and I was always stunned going around to their home and them having sea lion pups or um, albatross or things that have been rescued and brought to their uh, house, and uh, so it was. Um, I was fortunate because we were. Uh, friends and we, I'd often go out and and do pup sea lion pup counts and um, surveys for uh, hooded plovers on beaches and things at night and I just loved all that sort of stuff and got to see lots of biodiversity and I I, I just was very passionate about it. Um, I inquired when I was quite young around paths to get into the the field and so that's what led me down a a uni career Adelaide Uni um, uh, studying natural resource management. Um, and then um, followed on with some, I was fortunate to get some contract work after that, uh, helping out with some biological surveys. And that sort of started, uh, then led into further work with the Department for Environment uh, on uh, a range of species conservation projects. Mm-hmm. Have you always worked in like an ecologist type role? I have, apart from the um, high school days, you know, working in supermarkets and things like that. Yep. And so you spoke about what drew you to the field around this interest, um, especially with you saw your friends, family, um, what they did. Was it that particular, like being able to physically look after animals and look after the land that drew you to the industry or was it something else? You like the physical part of it? Um, I think it was just around the the wonder that is all the biodiversity that's out there. So the, I, I have loved learning about species and their behaviours and so that in particular, so the um, whether it be, um, yeah, a bird or a reptile, understanding the way it uses its habitat and um, and its preferences, those habitat preferences, um, I, I've loved that learning side um, yep. and the learning opportunities in the field are obviously endless because there are so many species to... Yeah which do so many different things. And so, yeah, yeah. I, I really like that side of it. Yeah. 
And what do you wish you knew before you started? In the power of hindsight, there's there's always be great to know a lot, uh, a lot of things back then. I, I feel that you know an important part of everyone's journey is that learning process, and and it only and that sort of process does take time. Mm. I guess um, interestingly, the the ecology field and the, particularly the conservation field that I've worked in, once you uh, sort of get into that space, there are lots of aspects around understanding species and threats, uh, threatening processes, um, which means when you go out into the environment, you're often uh, acute, acutely aware of some of those things. And so it's mm-hmm. it can be a little bit hard to switch off. So you're seeing these, whether it be a... Um, a a, a, a weed invading a, a native habitat or you can see that in lots of places. You might be on holidays and you'll see, wow, that looks like this weed is invading this watercourse or something yeah. like that. And yeah. So you sort of um, tend to uh, remain focused around those sorts of things. But I, I love that. I love looking at yeah. um, various issues around the place. and You learn a lot about a certain species or a certain topic and then do you ever have a feeling that you wish you knew that year, that ten years of knowledge, ten years ago. Oh, every day. Or, or do you enjoy every the day. journey? No, every day. That sort of stuff is um, the. There is so it's. And I think this comes with working with some fantastic people. There are so many incredibly knowledgeable people out there who share uh, share that wonderful, wonderful information that they've gained over the years, and um, and I. You know, I idolise those people who yeah. who are yeah. so so um, knowledgeable. Um, and I think that's, uh, yeah, that sort of stuff is, is always awesome. It's, it's great to be learning. I think it's, it's a uh, really important part of the role is to be constantly learning mm-hmm. and you just wish you got there sooner. Yeah. You always wish that. Yeah. Um, I guess other things that I wish only before. So, um, one of the things that, uh, been fortunate enough to gain an appreciation through work, um, and that is a far better appreciation about um, Aboriginal culture. And I feel that I didn't get much exposure to that prior to my career, and mm-hmm. um, I just feel that um, having a greater awareness around Aboriginal culture uh, would have been nice to be a, an advocate sooner mm-hmm. than than you know um, that that's for me that would be a nice. Uh, things to to have known earlier, for sure. Yeah. And we were mentioning before we started recording about uh, that Aboriginal culture wasn't really part of when you studied your degree. Mm -hmm. That wasn't part of it, but now it's a standard part of the degree and it's interesting and, you know, should it happen sooner, but it happened, including as part of the degree. Yeah, yeah. Well, that um, I think the just the um, everything from that, at schools and things like that. I think it's a really useful thing um, working with a lot of uh, traditional owners on species conservation projects and that that has been a, um, a real privilege in terms of uh, getting an appreciation for things that I had no idea about, um, things about culturally respectful approaches uh, to, to a whole range of different issues. Um, it makes it a lot more um, I'm a m- lot more nervous about doing anything which unintentionally inf- offends someone and things yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, but it's yeah. uh, but I feel so privileged to that that I'm yeah. even that's even on my radar now. And yes. so so those things are I, I'm super grateful for. Um, and uh, yeah, that sort of stuff. I I kind of think it would have been nice to to be aware of some of those things. Um, yeah, much sooner. Sooner in your career. Yep. yep. 
how would you, sorry, define success in the environmental field? It's an interesting one. Um, particularly in the conservation field, there's uh, an endless range of challenges facing biodiversity. So there's obviously a, a biodiversity crisis that's, um, that we're sort of facing out there with climate change and a, and a whole lot of um, biodiversity loss. Um, so I think one of the things about uh, uh, obviously success to me is that um, ability to, to remain Focused, I guess, in with a lot of the change that's happen, yeah. happening there to, to, to try and uh, always look for those opportunities that are going to have the biggest impact and uh, be most constructive with time and and not necessarily um, drifting away too far from the things that really make a difference because there is a lot of uh, a lot of various things that might pop mm -hmm. up as opportunities and things like that. But a lot of the basic conservation and recovery actions really do tend to come back to um, protecting habitat, managing threats, all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And so uh, for a lot of species, it's just making sure that the, the basics are, are covered. Uh, mm -hmm. And so um, it's a, it is a tricky one. So when you, when you do have successes, like a, um, a, it would be, it's fair enough to, to be happy when you make a good reco recovery progress and it it, um, it does happen and things can be much safer and it's a really awesome thing to do, mm -hmm. but you tend to um, not be able to just sit back and go, well, we, we got there with that species because there's a whole heap of other species which need attention. So you talk about focus and I guess I think about because a lot of environmental projects are quite long-term. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like you'll start one in 2024 and finish in 2024. Exactly. <laughs> it yep. would be uh, That's right. years to decades. Yep. So. How do you keep? How do you keep that focus um, for these potentially long, year, um, years long projects? I think. Well, I, I tend to use the, some standard processes around risk assessment. So we've got a whole range of species which have a status assessment done um, that identifies the threat category for the species and some of those uh, threatening processes, some of the the particular issues that a species may face, and so those listing processes. Um, and status assessment processes help uh, identify what are some urgent needs out there. And then um, there's a whole range of recovery actions that can be uh, implemented to turn things around typically. Um, and so it's um, trying to make sure there's enough traction. So it's really coming back uh, to that those tangible activities which can be implemented to turn things around. So um, whether it be increasing the number of individuals uh, might be a plant and you might yep. propagate more and yep. try and get them out there. It might be around managing weeds so they can regenerate naturally in certain sites and maintain their range. And so a whole range of those sort of tangible things. Um, the awesome thing when you go through a list and you've got a whole heap of priorities, there's lots of people out there doing stuff as well. So lots of community and councils and other stakeholders are, who are delivering great stuff for these uh, whole range of species. And so we tend to, I find we try and look for gaps and, and make sure that we sort of um, don't necessarily duplicate the work of others or we just try and fill, fill gaps. And uh, some of that may be a, for a species that may be a research gap, um, trying to break a bit of, uh, bit of a recovery challenge that we might face with some species or lack of knowledge around how best to, to work with a species. And so, 
Um, it can be variable from, you know, on-ground actions, which are clear, tried and tested things that work, yep. to um, trying to develop new, um, get new information to develop recovery actions, which are going to work for species. So, yep. yeah. And now we'll go into our next round, which is our rapid fire round. Mm -hmm. So that means I'm going to ask you 10 random questions outside of the environment sector, um, just to take us out of our safe space and get to know you a bit differently. So I will fire 10 questions at you and just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Mm -hmm. And so it could be your favorite thing, this or that, and just say the first thing that comes to mind. First question, do you like spicy cuisine? I do. I love it. Would you rather drink tea or coffee? Uh, coffee. A horror movie, something you like to watch? Uh, not really, no. No. <laughs> no. What's the worst one you've seen? Uh, I think I, I used to watch them when I was growing up. Um, you know, the, they're all the standard things, <laughs> standard, um, standard ones. But, the, um, yeah, that's something which I'm, I'm definitely not up there in my priorities to <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> go watch horror movies. Yeah. Which pizza topping is your go-to? Um, well, at the moment, it's, uh, uh, as a pizza place I go to, it's got a really y- a yum veggie sort of topping. Yep. Um, yeah, all eggplants, all that sort of stuff. I love it. Nice. What's your favourite thing about your job? Um, I love being able to work with such a diverse range of species and I love being able to work with some amazing people. Morning or night? Both. <laughs> I, I wake up early and I at the, moment, late. at the moment I'm hooked on going spotlighting and things like that so, so at the moment I feel like I'm burning the candle at both ends so that's, I have to say both and I'm already getting like four hours sleep <laughs> Netflix or YouTube? Um, I tend to Spotlight Spotlight more yep I'd say delete both of those and put unnaturalist <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm hooked on getting out there and finding critters and helping to map the distribution of things. And so, yeah, yep. INAT is where I'm at. Yep. Is that the slogan? Um. <laughs> <laughs> it should be. If animals could talk, which one would be the funniest to have a conversation with? Well, if animals could talk... Well, I feel like a lot of them do. Uh, I can hear the bats chatter, um, flying foxes chatter a lot, and yeah. I'm sure they've got good communication. Um, yeah, I don't know. It would be, yeah, it would be an interesting um, thing to have conversations with some critters. Um, perhaps because the, the bats are so chatty that yeah. it might be, I'll put them down as the, down. the one. Yep. What's the weirdest thing you've ever eaten? Insects. Uh-oh. Yeah, I've eaten insects. I don't know. I guess it's not. It's weird for for us. It's probably not weird for other people. Yeah, but yeah, it's just that's yeah. yeah, other cultures. It's Any just, particular insect? Um, so I try. I have tried uh, like crickets, those yep. sorts of yeah, cook crickets. But I guess I have tried wichita grubs and things right. like that, and haven't necessarily yep. found them weird. Probably yep. uncooked wichita grub would probably be the oh, yes. um, the weirdest thing. Yeah, I'll leave it. Yep, that one. And the last question, what is or do you have a hidden talent? Um, hidden talent? I I think I just persist with things like with I 
feel like I'm not too bad at um, uh, getting my head around some species. Um, yeah. uh, what is it that if you spend 10 minutes a day on something, you become yeah. an expert? And, yeah. and so I feel that's, that's where I'm at more than anything, not, not necessarily naturally talented, that's for sure. Persistence is a talent. Yeah, that might be it then. <laughs> Thank you. That's the end of our rapid fire round. So now we will dive into grey-headed flying foxes and their population in Adelaide. And But before um, we kick off a bit further, so you've worked with the bat for quite a while now. Mm-hmm. Were you drawn to the bat? Bats are a threatened species in the, the um, field that I've been working in. It, it's sort of uh, uh, threatened species are a focus of, of, yeah. of my work and yeah. have been a focus of my work. And so that meant that, um, yeah, when the species sort of arrived in South Australia because of its threatened nature, mm-hmm. uh, it meant um, I had an opportunity to get involved with that, uh, learn more about it a bit better. Yeah. Have you been working um, on them with them um, since 2010? Or yeah, since they, they since the um, their arrival the the arrival of a camp in South Australia, which was back then. So. Yep. Yep. Wow. All right. So grey-headed flying foxes are unique to Australia, and they're their largest Australian bat species. They can be found in Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, and right here in South Australia. They've been visiting South Australia for many decades, but only in 2010 did they set up a permanent camp at Botanic Park in the city. Um, the population has hovered between 20,000 to 30,000 in recent years, and um, they had a peak recently of about 47,000, um, thanks to the cooler weather. Jason, can you shed some light on why the flying foxes call Adelaide home now? Yeah, so back in 2010, um, there was a, a range of challenging conditions for flying foxes across their natural range, and it appeared that um, some of those climatic challenges, uh, lack of food in other parts of their range, may have resulted in um, bats looking for food elsewhere, having forced to, to roam more widely in the search of food, and, and some of them found, uh, made their way into you know Adelaide and other parts of South Australia. And, and ever since then, there's sort of been this food resource, local food, food resource has been on, the, on their radar. Um, yeah, so that... Uh, basically, those those tough conditions forcing bats to move has has helped them locate uh, what is a um, yeah a sig- significant food resource here in in Adelaide and yeah, and what a, particular things do they love? Uh, so they they love uh, eucalypt blossom. So that's one of the main sorts of uh, sources of food. So they they love eucalypt blossom uh, nectar from eucalypts, um, but they also take a variety of other. Um, tropical type fruits and uh, things like figs, uh, a whole variety of figs um, and um, palm fruits and things like that. So there's, a, there's quite a range of things that they utilise. Mm-hmm. They also take fruit from orchards and things as well. Um, yeah, quite a, quite a range, but but predominantly they're um, the main, I guess the main driver of the population locally is those flowering eucalypt mm-hmm. resources. Yep. And their population is growing in South Australia and in other places across Australia that can be in high numbers. I guess people have this perception that there's lots, um, but they are listed as a vulnerable species. Uh, is there too, 
Is there lots? Is it vulnerable? I feel like the message is a little confusing. Yeah, so I guess it's so our numbers have increased over the years, but I guess what we we anticipate. So the we were a bit unsure early on whether the bats in South Australia would actually survive because it's so hot and dry mm. in South Australia. So it's right on the edge of their. That's one of the driest locations within their range, and so hottest and driest locations that's susceptible to the heat. So we, there was a bit of uncertainty whether they would persist. Mm -hmm. They seem to be uh, persisting. And so what we anticipate now is that the numbers in the region will fluctuate in in relation to resource availability. And so when we have high numbers, it may, it would reflect a high amount of food in the area. Mm -hmm. But we also expect that when that food supply, when when particular eucalypts stop flowering, that numbers will adjust down. And we have seen that Already, so we're seeing the numbers um, rise seasonally, but then food does run out, and that has seen a, a, the colony reduce in size. They lose condition; they haven't got as much food, and then they have to start leaving Adelaide. The the species is very well connected, so there's one population of which there's movements between the camp. So what we see is that nationally is that the the bats within a camp will fluctuate quite considerably depending on food resources in that area. So this is the thing which is a bit tricky. When we look at Adelaide and we say our numbers are growing, our numbers have sort of grown to the point now where they're just following resource availability. That will go up and down, so it's not an all-one-way thing. Yep. It's, it's definitely an up and down. And so we see a season, some seasonal trends and we might the, – the thing is across their range – if things are really good in one area and really bad in another, so it can be a real sh food shortage in some areas, or, uh, for example, the, the big uh, fires on the, in southeastern Australia can really push bats from those other areas into other parts of their range. So you may see seasonal changes and drivers like that that really elevate numbers in some areas, and it's a, a fantastic thing for the bats in there is in that they've got an ability to try and... Um, deal with these climatic mm. or these seasonal uh, conditions in different areas and adjust and, and try and overcome those challenges rather than, um, yeah, being lost from particular areas. And, and so, so what we're seeing is this number fluctuating. So we're up around that 46,000 mark at the moment, which is quite high. For, it's up in the highest we've seen. Yep. But we also anticipate that um, as conditions change, that will head down again and so um, there are um, there is the potential that it might peak even higher so some some camps nationally can be up at 150,000 bats um, for a short period of time whilst the food resources are there if the food resources are not there they they obviously can't yep. and so we yeah we're basically seeing that fluctuation but we should also anticipate that there could be some really big spikes down the track and yep. that's just a part of the species trying to adapt to the landscape conditions that they're facing. Yep. When, uh, if they were to run out of food um, for a certain season and they mm. leave, in my head I think animals don't accept um, different different ones into their colony. So if they're leaving South Australia and they're going to a different state, can they just join another colony there? They can and they do. So, okay. they, the, so there's some really... Um, Fantastic work, uh, some tracking work that's showing that there's basically along much of eastern Australia, there's just constant interchange of bats between camps all oh. the time. And so even with our colony, the, the thing with our 
camp here in, in Adelaide is that it is some distance from other known camps. Yep. And so it's a, a bit of a big deal. It's a, not a, quite mm-hmm. as easy just jumping from one camp yep. to the other. Yep. But where you've got lots of camps in relatively close proximity, it's easy for bats just to jump from camp to camp. Yep. Um, and so that moving between camps is, is really what they do and what they do well. And so whilst we look out the, uh, the, the Botanic Park camp and see bats, a lot of those faces may be different from yesterday. And um, yeah, okay. yep, so that um, we just can't assume that they're all just the same ones there. Yep. Yep. Are there benefits of having flying foxes around our city? So they, uh, yeah, flying foxes, I guess they, they play a role in pollination. So that's where they're really uh, long distance seed dispersers. I guess from a, um, you know, this species is of conservation concern. Mm-hmm. So it is listed based on concerns over population declines. Yep. So the, the numbers at the moment around that, uh, you know, the, there's been a national national surveys and they're sort of in that um, 600, 700,000 flying foxes, which sounds like a lot, but it, across the its range, it's um, there is that underlying concern about declines. The, the benefit of uh, uh, having them here in Adelaide is that we're, playing a significant role in their conservation. Um, so we've, uh, whilst we, we wouldn't have had uh, flying foxes in, in the Adelaide region in the past because it was far less diverse in terms of eucalypts and fruits. Yeah. And so it was a, you know, grassy woodland, a, yeah. a few different species. But now we've got a, a magnitude of species that have been planted across the Adelaide. We've got irrigated sites and it's it's... Um, a bit of an oasis for species like flying foxes. And we've seen that with our um, rainbow lorikeets, which are daytime nectivore. Mm-hmm. They fly around and you sort of have quite a lot of overlap. And we've seen their numbers um, explode in the Adelaide region and surrounding Mount Lofty Ranges region. Yeah. Um, and so what we're seeing is that the flying foxes are just following that same path, utilising the resource that we've planted for them mm-hmm. um, and capitalising on that. And that... Uh, having them here helps um, play a part in their national conservation now. And why are they called flying foxes and not grey-headed bats? So the the flying foxes are in that the uh, a megabat group, and they they have it. If you have a, ever have a chance to look at them up close, they do have a real fox-like appearance, um, and they've got a foxy head on them, and so. Um, that's sort of uh, that flying fox yep. um, name has been assigned to that group, similar looking bats. Yes. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's where they get their common name. It helps just um, separate them out in a common name. Yeah. Um, so technically, cute. they're a bat and um, they're just in the that mega bat group as opposed to the micro bat group. Yep. Other states um, talk about, we mentioned earlier about some of the problems around having a, a big bigger population of flying foxes around. So smell, noise. So poo on your washing outside, um, power outages, diseases. Is Adelaide experiencing these problems and it is it on a, a serious scale? Right. So there's a lot of the problems that are, get um, mentioned around flying foxes relate to camps in particular. And so that's where you've got, so for example, we've got um, basically all the flying foxes in South Australia living in the heart of the heart of Adelaide. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a, um, some camps in the southeast, but predominantly most of the bats are here in Adelaide, the ones within South Australia, mm-hmm. in the heart of the city. So that con- so the concentration of animals, like a concentration of pigeons or a concentration, you do get those um, smells and and things that come with 
um, having lots of animals living in one site or spending time in one location. Yeah. And so that's where um, yeah, you walk through the camp, you will notice the smell, um, and you'll also notice that it can be noisy at times. There's um, in the lead up to breeding season, we know you know when bats are, um, are mating, they can be quite vocal, um, and yeah, so there's those sorts of things that come with camps. The there are also um, a whole range of other things when bats are out foraging, for example. They can be foraging around houses and feeding in people's backyards. And one of the things that we, you know, if you've got a really good food resource in your backyard, mm -hmm. it might attract bats. And it might, if it's really good, bats will actually defend it from other bats. And that's where they become quite vocal and yeah. squabble over that resource. And yeah. so if you've got bats, if you're out in the burbs and you've got bats in your backyard at night making noise, well, it's probably you've got a really good food resource, which the dominant bats are trying to protect from other bats. Yeah. And so that's where, um, yeah, people might hear them out and about at night. And otherwise, if it's not a great resource, they might be still going there, but you just don't hear much. So they, you know, in lots of other areas, there could be bats visiting and, and without much um, uh, vocalisations yeah. and basically going unnoticed. Yeah. Um, so when they're out foraging, obviously that's when they be more chance of coming into uh, you know, if they're feeding in a yard, they might be uh, defecating and that can impact on clothes and things like yep. that. And so I guess one of the things with that feeding out and about is that it tends to be a very, um, you know, fruit trees or a, a eucalypt flowering will be a, a flower over fairly short periods of time. Mm -hmm. And so you have that impact. It will be a short-term thing generally that you tr yep. need to avoid or yep. manage around. But yep. then as soon as that resource is gone, well, then the bats will too. And so, um, yeah, it provides a bit of relief after that. Yeah. Um, yeah, flowering or fruiting has changed. Um, with the, your work, I guess, dealing with volunteer groups um, and different areas in how, I guess, management of the bat population in Adelaide and just helping mitigate the the potential problems that could happen from humans interacting with animals. Mm -hmm. um, have you found the kind of, like, problems that I mentioned around power outages and maybe noise um, being a big impact on Adelaide? Interestingly, we've got a uh, power infrastructure which has been set up for um, a whole range of things but not flying foxes. Yep. So we've got a, a infrastructure, power infrastructure system that was set up without flying foxes. Yep. It's very different to those that were set up with flying foxes. Yep. And so yeah. now um, the or SA Power Networks are, are looking at the, the infrastructure and trying to figure out ways to retrofit safety aspects on there which mm. prevent or reduce the impacts of outages. Okay. So when young bats leave the camp in January, sort of that sort of period, um, they venture off and they're, they're basically on their L's and they land on things and uh, unfortunately they can out, out uh, cause outages. Mm -hmm. And so SA Power Networks have been working to try and look into those outages in a bit more detail. Um, they've been installing things called Frisbees, which help prevent bats shorting out yep. critical infrastructure components. And, and so as uh, some of these programs are rolling out, we hopefully see that the uh, improvements from that work. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, that's a, it's, it's a one of those novel things of having a, an infrastructure system that 
that just isn't set up for a species that, understandably, that wasn't even in the area, you know. Now we'll go on to our next section, which is pretty much random questions about bats. And so this has come about because we we at Green Adelaide get a lot of random questions about bats um, from media, social media, and um, just direct inquiries. And so I've just gathered them and just see if you can answer them for us. Mm-hmm. The first one, which we've kind of tapped on, um, but why do we see these flying foxes more in the warmer months? So based on flowering, yeah. So flying foxes. I guess what we do is we ha- we see is um, numbers can. In spring, we can have a slight increase in numbers in the Adelaide camp. Um, so lots of southern colonies, uh, southern camps of uh, camps across southern Australia can see a, a decrease in winter and an increase in spring-summer. Mm-hmm. So that may reflect flowering and uh, those seasonal conditions. Um, and so ours, our camp sort of does increase a bit. The other thing, over the warmer months, mm-hmm. the other thing as well is that over summer you've got... Um, you know, depending on the seasonal conditions, you you'd hopefully have some pups being recruited, and that that causing a an increase in uh, um, colony size yep. over that period too. So, pups getting older, or pups being born. Pups, so their pups are born in spring, so yep. they're in that September time, yep. October, and then um, then they're starting to venture out on their own in January, February. That January, February, March time. Yep. So, yep. so then you sort of get that January, February starting to potentially see more as these young ones are starting to venture out. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the other thing with summer as well is that it's much lovelier time to be out and about and um, spending time outside in, over summer. Mm-hmm. And so there's, uh, you know, not likely to be sitting out looking up at the sky in winter when it's raining and yep. freezing. And, yeah, yeah. and so that... Um, possibility of seeing them or the probability of seeing them might increase slightly as well over that summer period when it's much more lovely to be out and about. Yeah. And as bats are not native to Adelaide, we have covered this a bit, but I guess people assume they're pests because they're not from here, from South Australia. And obviously we've covered that's not true. They are threatened native species. Mm -hmm. Was anything you wanted to add to that, I guess, around this perception that people think they are pests? Yeah. So I think the, um, I guess that it does come up, or well, they weren't here naturally. Um, they shouldn't be here now. I guess one of the things is, is, is it, it's a bit of a um, interesting situation. We've basically planted up Adelaide and provide a lot of this food, and basically saying, "Don't come and take this food." <laughs> um, they're just doing it like our lorikeets are, and so we've basically provided a resource. The interesting thing with the flying fox is that they are threatened. They are. Um, we we should really be. Uh, encouraging threatened species to be adaptive and and do their best to um, survive into the future. And so um, we're mindful of that and we're mindful of the part that we can play in their national conservation. So Mm -hmm. uh, we are, um, I guess, embracing that that presence of the colony and just trying to understand it and and trying to, um, uh, and being really mindful of the role, the conservation role that having bats in South Australia can um, play. Yep. And do all bats, particularly great-headed flying foxes, uh, so microbats and, I guess, megabats, carry disease? Can carry. It's not that they all do carry. So that's okay. the thing where um, a lot of the viruses of concern um, can be detected in flying foxes, but they tend to be at really low frequencies. Yep. The problem with that is that you have to treat every bat as, um, as if it's carrying a disease, so you yep. don't you don't 
touch bats, even though there's a low probability, yep. you tr- treat it as it's um, everyone is a. So if you happen to be scratched or bitten by a bat, mm-hmm. you'd have to treat it as if that bat was yep. carrying a serious disease, and you'd have to follow the the right course of action to make sure you are safe. Yep. Um, and so, um, that's yeah, that's just a, a yeah. It's it's one of those things where. They don't carry lots of disease. They can carry a whole variety of diseases, um, mm-hmm. but um, we just have to make sure that we are as safe as we can around the bats and and try and not come into contact with them if we can. Yep. And are flying foxes dirty animals? No, I, I wouldn't consider them to be dirty animals. I, I think the um, the perception that they may be dirty may be coming from the people visiting camps and, and mm-hmm. they can be... Um, quite smelly places a camp, yep. but the animals themselves are actually quite clean. Yep. They, you know, spend a lot of time grooming and that sort of stuff. And you certainly, um, if you were to look at them, uh, if you get, ever get a chance to look them up close, they always look impeccably clean. And um, yeah, yep. so it's um, it's probably more an association of a camp being a, a somewhat of a smelly place mm-hmm. if, with the um, fecal material in those areas, mm-hmm. um, rather than the the bats actually being dirty. And why do so many bats die in Adelaide's heat? So, as I mentioned earlier, that South Australia is one of the hottest and driest parts of their range. And so, what we've observed over the years um, has been the, you know, in uh, Adelaide's heatwave events when you're getting the temperatures up in above the forties, mm-hmm. um, we see. Um, flying foxes succumb to heat stress, yep. particularly young flying foxes, and that's um, a problem for them where you might have adults moving to um, the the River Torrens for a drink and rehydration. Often youngsters can't make that move, and so they are left behind in the camp and they mm-hmm. um, suffer as a result and, yep. and are lost. So what we see is that in quite a number of years you can lose most of the young bats that are out there, so a large proportion. A whole variety of stakeholders work together to try and protect the bats as best we can. And also there's some work happening with trying to cool the camp and so people may see sprinklers and things on in the middle of a heat wave and wonder what's going on. It's not water-wise, yep. but it does actually play a really important role in cooling the, the camp footprint. Yep. And if we can avoid lots of bats dying, um, we know that, it's not necessarily going to change the number of bats in South Australia, that food resource is going to be the main driver. Yeah, yeah. So what we're doing by trying to cool the camp is that um, we're just trying to prevent a, a big welfare issue and, and a lot of um, high-risk issues of bats coming down all over the place in the heart of Adelaide. Mm-hmm. And microbats. So microbats versus megabats, obviously one's small, one's big. Mm-hmm. Are there any other megabats in Adelaide? Because microbats, there's a there's a probably a few of those species in Adelaide. Is flying fox the only megabat in metropolitan Adelaide? So we've so in South Australia, we in metropolitan Adelaide, we only have the grey-headed flying foxes. Yeah. Um, but there is, you know, in other parts of South Australia, I think we've had the odd little red flying fox record in some yep. of the arid areas. Yeah. Um, little red flying foxes are shifting their range, moving sort of into some southerly areas. So in years to come, we may see um, that species also extend into South Australia more more regularly. And last question, what um, should you do if you find an injured, sick or 
um, dead bat on the floor. Yep. So the the recommendation is that you call one of the, the care groups. Um, so that's um, Bat Rescue SA or um, Fauna Rescue. Fauna Rescue have a, a, a bat rescue team. And so they, they are, yeah, definitely the first port, ports of call. Um, and just, yeah, just the reason for that is that it's much safer for the, the bat if it's injured to have someone who knows about the appropriate handling of a bat to reduce the stress. They've got a lot of tricks up their sleeve to do that and do that really well and uh, in a really good position to make um, some good decisions around the way to work with bats that are coming into care um, and minimise all that stress. And even with the the dead bats, it's... it's um, really important that people remember that you, you could accidentally get scratched or you're not supposed to be handling dead bats and that. Um, so just to be on the safe side, um, using those, the support of those organisations is recommended. Before we let you go, just if we could finish off with a couple of takeaways from your experience in the environmental sector. So for our listeners who are new to the industry or just need some inspiration to get into the industry, um, what's one learning from your career to date in the environment sector that you wish you knew when you started or advice that you give someone who's ready to start? I always, I always um, often use provide the same bit of advice because I see a lot of people who get out there and volunteer and those that the importance of that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I... Um, I'm amazed that when I come into this work site, there are people here I've volunteered as a school kid with yeah. um, in the building. Yeah. It's unbelievable. So yeah. that um, that those uh, that volunteering is really important. One, um, you get to become a familiar face with lots of people. You get to learn from people who are working in the field and that exposure, that experience is really um, handy. Mm-hmm. You often have um, people who might go through um, training degrees and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but to to provide it yourself with a bit of an edge, having that diversity of experience is is, is really um, valuable and it can be... Great. Cool. Thanks, Jason, for your time. No worries. Well, that brings us to an end of Episode 7 of the Green Adelaide Podcast. Thank you to our special guest, Jason Van Weenen, who is a local bat expert and also the team leader of Urban Biodiversity at Green Adelaide. I hope you have learnt to at least kind of love all the grey head of flying foxes that we see all around metropolitan Adelaide, particularly in Botanic Park. And I hope that uh, maybe you'll notice them a bit more and maybe point out some facts that you have learnt. Great spots to see them is, of course, Botanic Park, but I would also suggest the old brewery Christmas lights, the good one to go to at dusk. This podcast is your insider scoop on all things cool, green and wild in metropolitan South Australia. I'm your host, Melissa Martin, and this is our last episode for 2023. I'll catch you for our next one at the end of January 2024. So Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Bye. Bye.